Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com dot com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's better help com slash sacred text. Grinning broadly at the look of horror on Uncle Vernon's face, Harry set off toward the station exit, Hedwig rattling along in front of him for what looked like a much better summer than the last. I'm the predictable continuity issues that arise in fantasy plots involving time travel. And I'm the hippogriff who never got let out of the stalls because Draco Malfoy distracted you all. Please let me out. And I am going back in time to rescue you on Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. So, Vanessa, we are wrapping up book three, The Prisoner of Azkaban. I really like this book and I like the reading of it. What did you take away from your reading this time through? The thing that I don't think I've noticed before is I think that this is the book where the trio really forms. Hmm. And I think you see that by their fight and the fact that they return to one another and the fact that they fight and that they fight again, I think is a really interesting plot choice that Hermione has McGonagall test the broom and then there's the fight about Crookshanks and then Hermione is again willing to tell McGonagall about the Marauder's Map, I think shows how much she truly cares about the boys and the fact that their their relationship is elastic enough that it can snap back from these things, I think shows their absolute commitment to one another. And I think that their friendship was absolutely, you know, tested before, but I think yeah. being willing to register concerns and complaints with a friend because miscommunications happen and different values compete and being in relationship is hard. I think this is where the three of them become a bonded trio. And I I hadn't picked up on that before. Yeah, I think that's totally right. You know, there are other tensions in the group, obviously. You know, in the books we've read so far, most famously in book one, maybe, they're fighting before they become friends. You know, they're like teasing, maybe even bullying Hermione and then they go through this thing with a troll and they're just bonded together. And that bond is kind of what carries them through the, her- the heroics of book one and book two. But here you're right. There's like, we're already friends, but now we're mad at each other. And we know we care about each other, but we also don't know how to deal with this. And they have to work through that. And that, you're right. I think they're developing some skills, which they're going to need later on. I mean, obviously, we know that there are going to be other tensions in the, in the next four books and other disagreements and other disputes and and fights. It's interesting that like it takes them being pulled apart for them to actually grow closer together, to understand that, oh, we are going to be pulled apart and we need to figure out how we're going to stay bound to one another and what that looks like and what that means. And yeah, that's maybe one of the things I do enjoy about the book is how these characters each develop individually, but also develop as a group. Yeah. I don't think conflict should ever be sought out. But nor do I think that it should be shied away from because I think that it is conflict that creates a space for us to understand one another. 
And I yeah. think that the boys learn that Hermione's priority is always going to be their safety. And without these conflicts, I don't think that they would ever understand how deeply concerned she is about that. And without this conflict, I don't think that Hermione, I guess Hermione wouldn't learn that she's okay without them. Yeah, I think that's right. I And I, I also think that, like, there is a sense in the first book that, you know, the boys come in and rescue Hermione from the troll. Right. And, I mean, she always has assertive and has confidence in her own intelligence, and she deserves that confidence. And that's not missing in the first two books. But her willingness to just say, like, I know better than you what's best for you. <laughs> right? <laughs> you all are being reckless and dangerous. Just like you said, Vanessa. Like, that's her learning that she's okay on her own is also her asserting kind of her place in the group, which is like, they need me to take care of them because they are doing dangerous things, right? And so I am willing to put strain in our relationship if it means keeping them safe, because that's a role that I can play for us. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. Matt, any other impressions that you want to make sure to say before we jump into our 30-second recaps? Yeah, one thing that I really liked was like the absence of Voldemort. I mean, he's a present absence, right? Everyone knows that he's the one that killed Harry's parents still, and that, you know, for most of the book, we think that Sirius was in his service, in Voldemort's service. And so I'm not saying that Voldemort's entirely absent, but just that, you know, one of the things that's going to happen from books four through seven is that there is this question about, like, what makes evil possible, right? And I feel like the theory of the first novel is evil monsters make evil possible, right? Voldemort is the thing that makes evil possible. And then in book two, we had the glimmers of like institutional complacency and failure combined with big evil forces make evil possible. And book three, like we can really start to see how institutional failure happens, right? Or what institutional failure looks like. The mishandling of the whole Buckbeak affair, the power of the Malfoys, Azkaban, the Dementors, right? Like the bad things that happen in this novel are outgrowths of an original trauma, but it's also people in the present, other people who are just making rash or not well thought through or incorrect decisions and putting people at risk, right? And causing harm to folks who don't deserve it. And I I like that the book, it kind of needs to take Voldemort out of the story in order for the Wizarding World's flaws to be more fully exposed so that by book four, we can see how these things work together, how Voldemort takes advantage of the wizarding world's flaws in order to affect all the evil he wants to affect. It's just an interesting move and and device, and I think a necessary one for the series to advance the way that it's going to advance and for the series to say what it wants to say about why and how evil can come to power. Yeah. One of the questions that I have about this book is, is Voldemort really absent? Yeah. But I think that you know, even though he's looming large, as you point to, I love this point that we need him as a plot off the page in order to show what it is that he can exploit, right? In order to show the cracks in the foundations that he can get into and seep into, that one evil person in a society that has its priorities correct cannot wreak the amount of havoc that Voldemort is going to wreak without these other flaws that get exposed in this novel. Yeah, that's right. You've said it better than I, than I did, right? Like, I think if you read the first novel, which is great, you, you might get the impression that the Wizarding World is great. It's rescued Harry from where he is. It's just there was this one really bad guy, right? And we learn more in book two. And because Voldemort's more off the page in book three, we learn, oh, he is this really bad guy. But there are basic flaws, structural flaws in the way the Wizarding World works that allowed him to come to power. And then That stuff's really going to get revealed, obviously, in books four, five, six, and seven. Well, Matt, should we reveal our own flaws by doing a (laughs) 30-second recap? Sure. Let's do it. Will you go first? (laughs) I would love to. I'll count you in. Ready? Yes. Three, two, one, go. So a typical day in the life of Hermione Granger, you wake up at seven to study, and then I'm pretty sure you do the time turner, and then you study again at seven, and then you go to class at nine, and you go to, let's say, arithmancy, but then you do the time turner, and you go back, and you go to charms, and then you do the time turner, and you go back to divination, and then you go to your 11 o'clock class, and after your 11 o'clock class, you smack Draco Malfoy in the face, then you go and try to help Hagrid uh, free a hippogriff, and then, of course, you figure out that your teacher is a werewolf. It is a busy day in the life of Hermione Granger. That's a lot to do. 
Okay. All right. On your mark, get set, go. I mean, you think Sirius Black had it bad. I have lived as a rat for 12 years, right? And Ron is not a great rat caretaker. And he he's just not, he's not, he cuddles too much. And also, I don't really like him. And then, so we go to school and this cat, there's something wrong with this cat. It is, it, it's a very dangerous thing. So I'm hiding in Haggard's hut and they find me again. And then they make me emerge. But luckily, the, what's his name turns into a werewolf and I can get away and I'm going to still get the work done. Lord Voldemort. I decided to try a new thing. I decided to do like what I've heard Casper and you do sometimes and like inhabit a character. Yeah. My favorite part was the ending in which you were like, Voldemort for president. That's right. Voldemort for student body treasurer. I was in character. So Matt, as always in our wrap-up episodes, we try to spend a moment to think about a character who, for many reasons, we often forget to think about, and that is our beautiful Harry Potter. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about Harry's arc in book three. I mean, I think Harry's grief just develops. In this book, in a really interesting, I think, recognizable and true way. I think along with everything I was saying before, where I think that the third book is filling out like the dimensions of how evil works, right? I think another thing this book does is fill out the dimensions of how mourning works, like how we relate to those who have gone before us, how we relate to those who are lost. You know, this is not a criticism of the first two books because they're it's just one book, right? But I think in the first book, Harry's parents are, I mean, he knows so little of them, almost nothing of them because his, because the Dursleys tell him nothing of them. What little he knows, you know, are lies, right? And all he sees of them are like specters, right? Like the mirror of Harry said, he just sees like these distant visions of folks who don't have depth. They're literally two-dimensional. They're in the mirror, right? Or in Hagrid's photo book, the same thing, like literally two-dimensional. So he can see images of them and they they haunt him because of his grief for them in a real way. And I think that lingers on into, into book two or that relationship with them. But in this book, now he's meeting people who knew them. He's meeting friends of them. He still doesn't have the whole story of them, but he's starting to learn that they were complicated people more complicated than he realized when before they were two-dimensional characters who saved him, his mom especially, that the turn of the focus to James here makes him have to start thinking about like who they were more three-dimensionally. And he gets a little bit of that from Sirius, and he gets a little bit of that from Remus, and he also gets a little bit of that from Snape, right? And so like yeah. they're they're coming into more depth and he's developing a relationship with their memory, which is more complicated than the one he had before. And he's also seeing how these folks have impacted others' lives around them in a more substantive or si- significant way, right? And so he's he's also, he's able to see how these folks live on in others. And then of course, yeah. at the end of the book, as Dumbledore says at the end of the book, how they live on in him, how his dad lives yeah. on in him, right? So I think one of the things I saw is just like his grief is deepening and becoming more complex, but also more like recognizable and more fully, fully formed as like human grief as like this thing that we all, we all go through. What about you? What, how did you read Harry's kind of journey through this book as part of his journey through this series of books? I had a very similar reflection and the way I started thinking about it was centering his relationship with Sirius in this moment that mm. I think we rightfully paid a lot of attention to, which was the alacrity with which Harry was like, yes, total stranger who I thought was a murderer yeah. five seconds ago. I will move in with you happily. And this like deep desire to create a new family and this willingness to entirely abandon his former sense of family because it wasn't actually a sense of family. It was a literal family, but it gave him none of the emotional or physical or psychological support that a family is supposed to, in theory, give someone. And I agree that it's about grief. You know, I I think at the beginning of the book, we have Aunt Marge's big mistake and it's... Oh, that's right. It's this like additional piece of evidence that things at the Dursleys are never going to really get better or change. The only way for Harry to make his life slightly better at the Dursleys is by threatening them. The book ends with him saying, can't wait to tell the Dursleys that my godfather's a convicted murderer. And that realization, right? Like 
is just so embodied, right? Like he literally runs away from home. He is entirely rejecting the Dursleys. And so he's looking in all of these beautiful and sad ways for a new family. Yeah. And, you know, we're going to find out later that it's not possible. Like he's going to have to keep living with the Dursleys for his own yeah. safety and because of this beautiful sacrifice that his mother made. And there's just something incomplete about that metaphor to me. And yet, yet the beginning of something beautiful that like you can create your own family, you can move forward with loved ones. And yet the way that you were raised, if it was a traumatic childhood, the way that Harry's is, you are always going to be living in a grief relationship with that, with the fact that you didn't have a better family of origin. And so, yeah, to me, Harry's grief evolves over the seven books and grief is something that never leaves us. And this is a beautiful snapshot, I think, of where Harry's grief is. Yeah, you're right. I, you know, I, I hadn't thought of that aspect of it, but part of the reason he has to cobble this together at age 13 is because there weren't people telling him stories, the right stories right. about his family. You know, I mentioned that, that, that the family lied, but I had forgotten the whole moment about about Aunt Marge, which is like the he runs away because he inflated her and he inflated her because she lied about his parents. Right. And he's asked to lie about himself to her, right? And he's asked to lie about himself. That's right. Yeah, yeah, right? And so, like, part of the the grief, the, like, the, the pain he feels is, like, I know that's not true, but I also don't know them. <laughs> like, right. I don't know who I came from. That means I don't know who I am in some way. And, like, I want to know. I want to know. And then people show up, like Remus, and, like— Serious. I mean, Hagrid's been there in the past before, of course, but people who who were close to them in a unique way are able to talk to him and 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 help him start to cobble together these things, which it's both a salve for his grief because he's getting to know these folks that he never really ought to know, but is also renewing the grief because he can't know these folks he's coming to know, right? And yeah, that's just part of the depth that's that's developing. Yeah. And and you're right to say that it's all situated within this kind of foundational abusive trauma of the adoptive family in which he has been raised for these 13 years, or at least until he went to Hogwarts. Yeah. I mean, I also just think it's notable that this book focuses so little on Lily. This is the book where he's really grieving James, right? Just insofar as like stories about what a good friend James was and that James helped torture Snape. We're we're really not given any information about Lily in this book. And I think it's important that, you know, even though he lost both of his parents to grieve them separately, right? Like each relationship would have been different. And I think often when trauma comes one after another, which is something that I feel like our society is dealing with a lot right now, and then individuals are dealing with even more acutely, it can be hard to separate out the traumas and say, not only did I lose this, but I also lost this. And I think yeah. that this is just the book where Harry is really dealing with the loss of his father. And as yeah. exciting as the possibility was that James came to rescue him, it must be really hard to realize, no, the closest thing my father is going to come to rescuing me is me rescuing me and him living in me. Yeah. So, Vanessa, one thing we like to do when we uh, have these wrap episodes and another advantage we have of like returning to these books, having read the whole series already, is that when we turn to an individual novel, we can kind of think about it within the context of everything else that has happened and is going to happen. Let's talk about what else is going on. What else is developing in this series? Something we like to call in these wrap episodes, the long view. What is your long view of The Prisoner of Azkaban, Vanessa? Of my long? view. The most important one to me is how poorly every adult in these books assesses where the danger is coming from. So this is the book in which we get introduced to a sneakoscope. Ron brings home a sneakoscope from Egypt. And then Harry like puts it in his trunk and we like never see it again, which it turns out that the sneakoscope actually kind of functions. Then we have Dementors, and they are supposed to be keeping Sirius Black out. They are horrible about this, right? It is actually the 
aunt who's invited into the house and the childhood pet, right? And the dementors themselves, the guards themselves that are the heart of the violence and the trauma in these books. And that was interesting to me. Yeah, I think that's right. Especially, I think that a lot of this begins in the home. But another thing that I was tracking in my long view is has to do with this, the thing you brought up about the Dementors. I mean, Azkaban just sounds like an awful place. Yes. Like a terrible, terrible place. Yes. And the Dementors are a terrible, terrible form of punishment, right? Like, yes. it just seems all around just bad. And I, this is an official, this isn't like Voldemort's idea for how we should punish people who break the law. This is the Ministry of Magic's idea for criminal punishment. Yeah. Right? This isn't like the evil guy's vision for criminal punishment, which it sounds like this is the good guy wizards right. who have come up with this plan. And and one of the things that I see emerging in this book, I've already kind of mentioned this, is like, okay, there are there are problems in wizarding society and culture. And some of those are attitudinal wizarding supremacy, pure blood ideology. But some of them are also like institutional. Institutions are not good at doing their job. They have bad ideas. They're cruel or wanton or indifferent at all the wrong times. We see that emerging. One of the things I want to ask the series, and I think I mentioned this before on the podcast, but ask the series is just sort of where is the series' distrust of institutions? Like, especially as this theme develops more in books four and especially maybe book five and six and seven is sort of not just our institutions failing. We know they fail in the next four books, but why are they failing and what sort of solutions are on offer? And is there a proposal made for how to make institutions better? Uh, Yeah, it's just one of the things I'm thinking about, especially around the question of the Dementors, which seems like such a, a cruel and terrible plan for criminal punishment in the wizarding world. I mean, that's one of the things that Ariana Nettleman, former producer of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, really points to. Because to answer your question that I know you want to spend the next four books thinking about, the (laughs) answer to me is Hermione, right? And like that is one of the problems with the wizarding world. And I think that that's one of the problems with the muggle world also is that we rely on individuals to be questioning these systems and to be doing the really hard work of making these systems better. I know that a few months ago when Roe versus Wade was repealed, my overwhelming feeling was despair because I was like, I can't actually do anything about this, right? Like to me, this is actually kind of up to Joe Biden and his willingness to repeal the filibuster and to expand the court, right? Like it really felt like I can vote and I can donate and I can protest, but this is utterly out of my hands. And Hermione is someone who's always saying, it has to be in my hands, right? She's someone who doesn't despair. And I just despair on her behalf, right? Because this book, book three, that is what she is saying about corruption in the wizarding world, right? She's like, it should not be up to Draco Malfoy telling a lie yeah. that decides the life of a hippogriff. And she goes and she struggles and she studies the law and like does everything she can and yet still the world betrays her and it is only luck, right? And and Dumbledore's giving her permission to illegally use the time turner that actually saves Buckbeak. And I don't know what to do with that, with the fact that these resistances often fall on people with the least power. I mean, I think that's right. That's the theme of the book. I mean, this saving the world falls on children. That's right. That is what happens, right? And we've talked about that before. You've mentioned that before. I think I think the reason I want to track it is because I entered this series this time, you know, having read it with you now for over a year, skeptical because I thought, oh, the the books actually say institutions can't be trusted, and these institutions can't be trusted. And given the situations you're describing about our our contemporary muggle world. Institutions can't be trusted. Even ones that we used to trust don't seem like they're very trustworthy these days. Or some of us maybe used to trust. Maybe we always had reason to mistrust them. I'm sure we did. So I think return to this series, I was thinking, oh, I think the book might actually have a kind of libertarian vision of the world where individuals have to be Mm -hmm. the ones who take responsibility for their own salvation. So I entered the series skeptical 
And right. I'm losing my skepticism as we advance because I'm seeing how much actually Harry, who would be the libertarian savior <laughs> on this reading, yeah. actually depends upon so many other people and builds right. relationships with so many other people. And it is the least powerful who end up having to take responsibility for overthrowing evil as we go through the book. But it's because they work together and share power and build power together and take responsibility for each other and resist together that they generate this power. And so like, oh, well, maybe it's not skeptical of collective power. Maybe it is providing a way to build some of those institutions right. more justly. I don't know yet, right? I still have this yeah. worry, but that's what, a, what I'm really tracking, especially as we enter books four, five, six, and seven. I mean, one of the things potentially to track, I don't think that there are a lot of data points on this, but Harry's relationship with Florian, the man who owns the ice cream shop, is that Harry has never understood the history of magic better than when Florian is telling him exciting stories about past battles. And later, Florian is going to give the kids like free ice cream. There's a relationship being built here. And then even later in the series, Florian is going to be, you know, kicked out of Diagon Alley. And I think that you do see this relationship form between Harry and Florian. And this is something that Tim Snyder talks about in his book on tyranny, that one of the ways to fight tyranny is by caring about your neighbors and building relationships yeah. around small talk. And this relationship between Harry and Florian that starts in this book is, I think, one of the answers that the book gives us, that the way to resist is in having conversations with the man who's scooping your ice cream. Yep. Because Harry's going to notice when Florian goes missing, and that yep. matters. Yeah, and maybe you're, and maybe that's internal to this book, too. Like, maybe some of that, that Timothy Snyder answer, right? Because there are a lot of students at Hogwarts, none of them— pay much attention to Hagrid or become friends with him. Right. There is a special relationship between Harry and Hagrid, but these three kids really care about Hagrid. That's why they wanted to go see him. That's why they were given the opportunity to intervene. That's why they found out Pettigrew was hiding there. That's all this stuff happens, and it's very risky stuff that should not fall to the three of them. But it was being neighborly yeah. that actually facilitated all this. They, were, they didn't even think they were going to go fix it. They were like, we need to go help Hagrid grieve. Let's right. go take care of our friend, right? And there is something that's magical, right? Like just making the choice to do that gave them the chance to be in the right place to take advantage of some other opportunities to prevent some injustices. Absolutely. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. One other thing, Matt, that I would like to take the long view of is just this question around intergenerational trauma that I think really starts popping up in book three. Mm -hmm. 
I think of book five is the trauma book, right? Caps Lock Harry, dealing with the trauma around Cedric. It is where we see Harry acutely triggered and walking around, unable to shake this thing that has happened to him, that he has witnessed and that he has endured in book four. But this book, his strong response to the Dementors, we are told, is because he has witnessed incredible pain. And this is a pain that his conscious brain does not remember. He does not actually remember it you know, at the age of one, hearing his mom's screams. But this book seems to be positing that this trauma on a physiological level is in him in a way that I find a little inconsistent because I don't understand why the Dementors can affect him like this, but he can't see the Thestrals, but we can leave that to be discussed another time. But I do think that the book is, is hypothesizing about trauma and the fact that even though a trauma has happened in the case of Snape, you know, 20 years ago, or Harry, even before you can remember it, or like Harry, Ron, and Hermione in a previous generation, it still is alive in a really significant way. Yeah. I don't know if this is a long view. It's just something I noticed in this book that I maybe want to pay attention to going forward. The thing you said that got me thinking about this is when you said, oh, this is when we get to know James. And this is when Harry gets to know James. And Harry gets to know James through James's friends. Mm-hmm. And he learns about James through his friendships. And I was like, well, we never really learn about Lily's friends. I except, except Snape. Snape. Or James and the Marauders, right? Like, we only learn about her relationship to them a little bit or to Snape. We don't learn about her female friendships, right? And we don't actually see female friendships Mm-mm. arise at all in this series. And in the background in the, only. They're in the background, like, right? But we don't have like these deeply developed, yeah. like we don't learn about, and this that's not just how human beings work. I mean, the, what we were just saying is that Harry gets to know who his father was or gets a different dimension of who his father was by meeting his friends, by learning about his friends and learning how he impacted them and what they thought of him. And that that's part of the richness and complexity of being a human is like all these different relationships. And the, the primary relationship of Lily in this book is to James and to to Harry, which is a highly domestic and gendered sort of vision of what it means to be a woman in the world, right? Yeah. Like, it makes me think, like, I want to learn about Lily's friends. I want to learn, like, what her life was like at Hogwarts. I want to know more about her and who she was as a fully realized person. And I think the only way the series could do that would be if there were also old friends of Lily's who showed up and mentored Harry or got to know Harry or were fighting in the the Wizarding War, it's a loss because she's such a pivotal character and so much of the book from the foundational moment of the whole series depends upon this act of love, the protective love that she takes on behalf of Harry. But by not filling out her character around that, it reduces the complexity and significance of that of that act. I wish I knew more. I want to know more about Lily and I want to learn it from her friends and I want to learn what they're like now and I want to learn what they say to Harry and Ron and Hermione when they're about to go into battle in a few books from now. Yeah. Rowling definitely exhibits signs of internalized misogyny in these books, right? Girls are often seen as silly in these books. Their concerns are silly. The girls who we are asked to take more seriously our quote-unquote tomboys. Like, there is some really retro gender politics in these books, not surprisingly. And it is. It's like a huge shame. We see these very background glimpses of, like, a kind of trio with Katie Bell, Alicia Spinett, and Angelina Johnson. We see, you know, Parvati and Lavender have a relationship, but, like, Lavender gets really treated horribly by Ron in book six. We never see Hermione in her dorm room, and I understand that it's, like, from Harry's point of view, but it would be nice to see her be friends with the girl she shares a room with for six years. Yeah, and it's, like, it's really valued in these books that a girl can hang with the boys, but a girl who can hang with other girls or a boy who can hang with girls, like that is that inverse is not appreciated in the books at all. That's right. Yeah. Well, Matt, we like to do a modified version of Florilegia for our wrap-up episodes in which we pick a sentence that we think 
represents the whole book or our experience of the whole book in some way. And I'm wondering what sentence you have selected. So this is the sentence I chose. He can go to Azkaban, Harry repeated. If anyone deserves that place, he does. This dialogue from Harry happens right after he's, you know, persuading Remus and Sirius not to kill Peter Pettigrew. They're all ready to do it. And he says, no, don't do it. And, you know, he has a comment before this where he says, you know, I, I'm not doing it for you, Peter. I'm doing it because I don't want my dad's friends to become killers like you mm-hmm. or something like that. And then he says he can go to Azkaban, Harry repeated, if anyone deserves that place, he does. And I, the reason I chose this is because, you know, maybe it's clear from some of the things I've been saying about Azkaban earlier in this episode, but like you can see some of the tension of the books here, which is like Harry is thinking, no, we want more justice. Something, there's a different kind of justice or a different kind of way we want to respond to this. It's not murdering Peter right now. And yet the only thing he has to fall back on is Azkaban. And the only language he has for what Peter deserves is kind of the framework of Azkaban. If anybody deserves that place, he does, right? I mean, what's implied there is maybe nobody deserves that kind of place because it's mm-hmm. such a cool place. If anyone does, it's this guy. But it it just, it, to me, it just kind of exposed just a lot of the tensions of what's already going on in the book, that this group of folks is trying to reach out f- for the wizarding world to be better, to become a different version of itself. But they have to imagine from the frameworks that they have. I mean, it makes me think of the way me as a, an American citizen, right? A U.S. American citizen. And I think about that criminal justice reform is needed. People need justice. And I also want people who do terrible things brought to justice. But the only system of justice we have is an unjust system. And right, so right. we're caught in this bind where we both want justice, but the f- institutions and frameworks we have themselves are unjust and we have to imagine our way out of them, but still demand. I, it's just... A lot of, I think, what I feel internally about the the world today is represented in this line. And it's also just, I think, really telling about what's going on in the wizarding world. As we see in this book, the flaws of the institutions are becoming more fully revealed and realized. What sentence do you have, Vanessa? I'm really feeling in what you said, that like feeling of trappedness, which is a similar vibe as my sentence. The one that I picked is, about these recurring fights that Hermione and the boys have in the book. And it's Hermione who remained convinced that she had acted for the best, started avoiding the common room. And this is in the middle of, you know, Hermione has told McGonagall about the broom and that she suspects it has come from Sirius Black. And this retreat into isolation is a theme in book three, right? Peter Pettigrew retreats into isolation. Sirius retreats into isolation. Lupin does. And we know that, you know, he bit himself. You picked the sentence of he began to harm himself when he retreated into isolation. We know that Harry is going to do that again and again. This is not a book where I think that that happens tremendously. Although even Harry, right? He blows up Aunt Marge and he like retreats into isolation, right? He starts avoiding his family. And just how dangerous that is. I think the reason that it sparkled up at me is because it is a move that I make. And I'm not always convinced that it's wrong, right? Like, if I'm sad or grieving, I avoid the common spaces. And I, I do that, I think, in part to feel my feelings, but I think I also do that to avoid my feelings. You can watch Netflix better by yourself, (laughs) you know, the shows that are going to distract you better by yourself. But I think that there's something really important about when you're convinced you acted for the best going to the common room anyway and sort of claiming that space or when you're grieving or you're sad going to the common spaces because, you know, if you're grieving, you know, I was just thinking about my family and how much joy I derive from Peter and, and the kids and I will retreat when I'm sad because I don't want them to have to see me be sad, but like that is also showing them part of myself and also they will pull me out of that sadness authentically yeah just by existing and so i think hermione is pretty freaking flawless in this book and i however i wish that she had not avoided the common room yep and maybe it's not Hermione's fault. Maybe it's the text's fault, right? Because where are her yeah. other friends? Like we were just saying, totally. right? I mean, Hagrid's one, which is why she goes to Hagrid, right? But right. where are the other friends in her dorm who can hang out with her in the dorm because she doesn't want to go in the common room, who are up right. there with her, like giving her that kind of support, yeah. Or even in the common room. Or right? in the common like, room, yes, absolutely. Parvati yep. being like, hey, Hermione, sit with us, yeah, right? right? 
sit with us, I think, is like one of the great, most generous things that we can say to one another. Yeah. Especially in middle school, right? Especially in middle school. But I think always, right? I, yeah. Whenever one of the kids were at a dinner party and one of the kids looks at me and is like, will you sit next to me? I am flattered as if I am in middle school. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'll sit next to you. Thanks for asking. <laughs> so Matt, should we put these sentences in conversation with one another? Let's do it. Okay. He can go to Azkaban, Harry repeated. If anyone deserves that place, he does. Hermione, who remained convinced she'd acted for the best, started avoiding the common room. Ooh, it sounds like they're fighting over whether or not this person can go to Azkaban. Yeah. I mean, clearly Hermione doesn't think that Harry was wrong and that Harry didn't kill Peter. I think Hermione's in the place what I was trying to express before, which was like, no, Azkaban, Azkaban's awful. What are we doing here? Right. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's within the logic of these two sentences together. Yeah. It sounds like the two of them are having this fight where he's like, no, you should have let me, right? How dare you let Peter Pettigrew go? He should have gone to Azkaban. Yeah. And this question of like, Acting alone within the logic of this, Hermione would have let Peter Pettigrew go without talking to Harry. And there's Mm. this key moment in the text where Lupin and Sirius say, look, it's up to you. And Hermione in this context would be saying, it's actually not up to you. It's what's right that matters. Yeah, that's right. I don't care about your individual feelings about it. It is wrong to send anyone to Azkaban. That's right, because you're right. Remus and Sirius lend all the authority to Harry in that moment. And that's exactly what Hermione has not been doing throughout the book, which is like, right. no, there's actually, you're not, maybe not the best decider. You have, <laughs> you, you might be biased, Harry. Let's do the right thing, the best thing, not just what you want. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Even as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, even the best of the bad decisions, right? But yeah. Right, right. Azkaban is is not necessarily the best bad decisions. Right. I think that what Hermione is doing again and again in this book is seeing outside the paradigm, right? Like she's literally outside of the yep. time-space continuum. And right. it, in, in this, she's like, you think that the options are death or Azkaban, but like there's a whole other option, right? Yeah. And that often feels like a helpful way to think of like, what is the third option that I'm not even seeing? Yeah. Okay, should we flip these sentences? Let's flip them. Okay, Hermione, who remained convinced that she had acted for the best, started avoiding the common room. He can go to Azkaban, Harry repeated. If anyone deserves that place, he does. Hmm. It seems like Hermione absents herself from the situation. Like, this is, I can't be parted to this. I am leaving. Right. The same way like she was like, I'm not going to I'm not going to let you enjoy this broom. I'm not going to condone you going to Hogsmeade. What's going on here? I refuse to be a part of. So I'm leaving. And that's exactly what kind of gives Harry the freedom to like do what he wanted to do, because someone's not there telling him you ought not to do this. Yep. To me, it suddenly made Harry seem like this person who's just in the common room repeating this to himself again and again. Like, he can go to Azkaban if anyone deserves that. Interesting. Or even, like, on a soapbox being like, he can go to Azkaban. Oh, interesting. And Hermione's like, I don't want to freaking hear this one more time. And so she's avoiding the common room, right? Like, the use of the word repeated. And again, like... Like, he's perseverating over this, right? Yeah. Yeah. And she's like, we did the right thing. Like, let's move on. Right. Yeah. And like, this is a tactic that I, that I also (laughs) use sometimes of like, this person is obsessing. I'm just gonna (laughs) kind of let them obsess. And it's one that Hermione is actually going to have to use in the books. You know, Harry obsesses about Draco and Hermione's like, we just got to move on from this. But again, this question as to whether or not avoiding is actually the right move is still a question to me if you should be sitting with someone while they repeat something again and again. Yeah. The question of like taking care of yourself becomes a real one. Yeah, right. And when, just like the moral issue, like when, when is it right to, to just absent yourself from it? Yeah. Right. Or when is it right to like, to keep at it? Uh, Yeah, I don't know. Good questions. Thank you so much for doing this last sacred practice in book three, Matt. Thank you, Vanessa. It was great. 
This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage of the French Open begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. It is now time for us to remember friends and family of our community that have been loved and lost. Ryan Williams, who is 32, a community creator, artist, explorer, and friend. Phil, who is a young 88 years old, a pilot and beloved family humorist. Kenneth Workman, who is 87, and everyone's grandpa and friend. Mark Allen Noel, who is 47, a devoted son, father, and who loved rock and roll. Liam Lee, known to all as Six Fingers, a friend and neighborhood icon who kept the mailroom running for many years. Danielle Buffalo, who was 27, a daughter, dog lover, a queen of funny comebacks, and a Harry Potter fan. Alexandra Robinson, 33, a friend, partner, and indigenous artist. Karen Gibson Mueller, 69, a phenomenal mother, person, and teacher. Danny Sullivan, who is 27, a beloved partner and engineer. Pauline Priest, who is 96, a grandma, ice cream lover, and world traveler. May their memories be a blessing to us all. Matt, it's now time for us to offer blessings for characters from the whole book. Who would you like to offer a blessing for? I would like to bless Remus Lupin. I'm doing that partly because I'm trying to smuggle in some etymology. Mm. <laughs> Lupin comes from lupus, which is the Latin word for wolf. Mm-hmm. The illness lupus actually is, I guess, some 13th century physician thought that the, it looked like a, a wolf bite, the, the scarring. Yeah. And Remus was the brother of Romulus, and the, the two of them nursed from a wolf and then had an argument about what city they should found in the seven hills of Rome, and Romulus <gasps> killed Remus and made Rome. So Remus is a really tragic character, 
in Roman mythology, and Remus is also a really tragic character in the Harry Potter books. I think maybe because I'm a teacher, I find myself reflecting upon how people teach and who teaches and how they teach in these books. And I don't like everything that Remus does in this book, obviously, as a teacher, but I like the way he treats his students. And I like the, the respect he gives them. And I want to bless him for that and bless, bless teachers who try to do the same. Because it's, it's a hard job, but the thing that students need most is kind of respect and affection and care from those who have been privileged to instruct them. And Remus seems to know it, and, and so he does it. Who are you blessing, Vanessa? I want to bless Hermione for, I mean, she just in this book is like, difficult moment, going to do the right thing. Difficult moment, still going to do the right thing. No worries. But I want to bless her for two key things. One, for just completely committing herself to Hagrid in this book. I think it's just so beautiful that she just keeps going down there. I don't love that she is doing so much extra homework, but I think that going down to keep Hagrid company and to take on someone else's problem as if it's your own is a really beautiful thing. I love this instinct in Hermione and I think it's I think it's fantastic and it is how we get liberation. The other moment I want to bless her for is, in part because it never occurred to me until this time, is that she was not going to freaking use the time turner unless Dumbledore gave her permission to. You tell this child this privilege is also a responsibility. And this girl who's willing to slap Draco Malfoy, like clearly willing to break a rule. And she's like, I will not break McGonagall's trust. And then as soon as Dumbledore gives her permission, she's like, on it. I will do it. I just love that moment that like it almost doesn't even occur to her to use this power that she has. It's just like out of respect. You know that she's someone who's willing to break a rule, but this is too much of a sacred promise that she's made. I just love her. She's perfect and beautiful and she's got great hair. Okay. Blessing for everyone out there who has great hair. Not Sorry Productions will be hosting a class for NaNoWriMo. NaNoWriMo is the National Novel Writing Month, which happens each year in November. And this year, if you would like to write a romance novel, then Not Sorry Productions will be hosting a class to help you do that. So write a novel, write a romance novel, and let Not Sorry Productions help you do it. Yes. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text has been a Not Sorry production, and Not Sorry is a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. We are edited and produced by AJ Uramas. Our engineer is Erica Wong. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by ACAST. Thanks this week to Lara Glass, to Julia Argy, to Gabby Iori, to Nikki Zoltan, Casper Terkyle, Stephanie Paulsell, Hannah Rehack, and all of you who sent in the names of your friends and family who have been loved and lost. Usually I'm anxious about how badly I will fail uh-huh. because there's a there's a glimmer of hope that I won't. <laughs> right. right. Like on a, in a weekly week basis, I'm thinking, well, this was only 20 pages. I can probably recap this in 30 seconds. Right. Today I have no hope. And so right. I also have no despair. <laughs>